Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd, and in this conversation, recorded in September of 2019, I speak with Alan Weissman, professor of journalism, Latin American studies, and literature, award-winning New York Times bestselling author. In fact, his 2007 book, The World Without Us, is really one of the most significant, probably the most significant early pieces in this post-doom world. It was Time Magazine's number one nonfiction of the year. And Alan brings a, a depth of research and understanding into what really qualifies as post-doom. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Alan, it, I'm grateful that you can uh, be with us in this uh, post-doom series. Uh, you've really been one of the granddaddies of post-doom. Uh, I have? Well, you, you have. Explain term, that to me, because I don't even know what the term means. You know? Well, in terms of looking beyond contraction, beyond collapse, what's possible, how things continue, like, like it's not all about human-centeredness. So I've... Uh, your work has done more to further, I mean, an entire generation of people. I mean, that's perhaps an exaggeration, but millions of people were able to see beyond what they would consider the worst case scenario for humanity, namely our extinction, because of your work. And so that for me is post-doom. It's looking beyond human-centered contraction and collapse as the end of everything and recognizing that the world continues, life continues, evolution continues, ecology continues. Uh, so that's that's all I'm meaning by that. Okay, I'll, I'll accept that. Yeah. So um, if you could, for for anybody who's not uh, read or you know watched the stuff based on your writings, um, could you share a little bit of just who you are? Help us get you. Help the people who are watching this or listening to this and and aren't familiar with your work. Help us understand what you've contributed and and what you're particularly focused on or passionate about these days. Well, I'm a journalist. I'm. Uh, I became a journalist because I couldn't decide what to do with my life, and journalism lets us poke our noses into all kinds of things. Uh, but over the years, one of the most interesting things for me to cover was the environment, simply because I enjoyed it so much. As a kid, I grew up next to a large marsh and um, wetland, I guess is what... People call it these days, we just called it the swamp, but it made me love nature a great deal. Um, so I would take advantage of any opportunity I had to write something about the environment, to accompany ecologists into the field. Um, I would say I learned more about writing from ecologists than I learned from anybody because uh, ecology is the study of how everything in the world connects. Uh, you know, we talk about uh, the an ecosystem being a web, and I would have these magnificent experiences with journalists, uh, with, with ecologists, where we would just stop to look at something, and two hours later, we'd still be in the same spot because, like, everything you know, that was happening in front of us, you know, why a particular bird showed up, uh, you know, what kind of tree it was in, what season it was, what the temperature was, what insects were we we hearing. If those insects were here, you know, what plants are, are they feeding on? What plants have those birds helped to either pollinate or spread their seeds, et cetera, et cetera. 
And it sort of became my template for learning on learning how to describe what the in anything in the world. Um, you know, it's not so much what is happening, but how did it come to happen? How did it get to be this way? What's what all leads up to it, and what are the repercussions going to be? And um, I was using that template to cover all kinds of things. Uh, one of my early books was about the U.S.-Mexico border, and and it was about everything that happens on the border. You know, the cultural mixing, the linguistic mixing, the culinary mixing, the uh, contraband that flows in both directions. Oftentimes, that was guns going into Mexico, dr drugs coming back up. Uh, but it was also along this two thousand mile line. Uh, half of it a river and half of it um, a, a high desert that was is a magnificent ecosystem and nature doesn't care where there's a border I mean it starts to care when we start putting up walls and things along well, it. certainly the animals care well yes yeah. uh, but you know if there's an obstacle that we put in their way to stop them right. you know but basically you know I, I understood that you know what these two countries the United States and Mexico are privileged to share is something that has been there for a long time and uh, we depend on it in many different ways. Anyhow, coming forward from that book, which was in the mid 1980s, it seemed like more and more of the stories that I were doing, was doing were environmental stories because um, environmental problems were coming to fore and also at the base, every story is an environmental story. Ultimately, it's about resources. Economics is certainly is based on resources. Culture all grows out of the land. It grows out of a place. It grows out of a setting. And a lot of these settings were being beleaguered. So I found myself more and more because that book and subsequent books were getting a lot of attention. I was getting assignments all over the world and I was going to these gorgeous places, but they were also terrifying places because of what was happening, like Antarctica, because there was a, an invisible hole in the sky over it. Uh, I was in the Amazon and in the Orinocan rainforests, but I was there because they were being burned down or mowed down for uh, either cattle cultivation or, or coca cultivation. Uh, I was in the Arctic uh, watching it melt away. Uh, one assignment took me to my father's homeland, Ukraine, where these incredibly fertile steppes just go forever. Mm -hmm. uh, except the place I was, look beautiful until you turn on the Geiger counter. This was in a, just a couple of years after the Chernobyl uh, disaster. And after a while, I began to realize that these were not discrete events. They were all connected, and the connection was my own species behavior on the planet. Uh, so I decided, because I've been so privileged to see so much of it, that I should write about what I was beginning to understand was not just individual environmental crises, but a global uh, environmental crisis. The problem, though, was that, you know, who's going to read a book about a global 
environmental crisis. A, unfortunately, even though there are many fine environmental books written, rarely do they break through to a wider audience. Uh, you know, there's some imaginative examples like Bill McKibben's book, The End of Nature, but for the most part, people just avoid them because they find them too depressing or scary, you know, unless they're already interested in the environment, but I don't need to reach that audience particularly. So I thought about it for a few years until just a, a comment by an editor who had seen that article I'd wrote, I'd written for Harper's Magazine as a cover story on Chernobyl, who told me that at first it was the most depressing article that she'd ever read, but over the years, it turned into the most hopeful article because she saw that in the absence of people, I described how the foliage was overtaking the houses, the neatly trimmed hedges were, were swallowing the rooftops, and um, even animals were coming back. Um, <clears throat> they were having abbreviated lifespans because they're radioactive, but still, they, the biodiversity around Chernobyl was higher than any other place in Ukraine. And she said, wow, I wonder what would happen if that happened everywhere. And um, at first I thought that was science fiction, mm -hmm. um, which also people don't read, so I don't write it, <laughs> um, you know, except for the people who, who love that stuff. And I loved it as a kid, but it's, it, it, it's, it's still a select audience. Mm -hmm. um, but as I started to think of it, I realized, wow, this could be really interesting. You know, what if I just removed all the human beings from the planet and you know, just assume that something would kill us all off and remotely that's possible. You know, an epidemic, uh, homo sapiens specific virus, say the AIDS virus went airborne and instead of being passed through fluids and we all got it. Okay, so if I removed all the people, you know, by killing them all off right in the beginning, then people wouldn't have to worry about, are we all gonna die? And yet, you know, we're all kind of suckers for the future. So they get to sit around and see, okay, so what would happen next? In a sense, what I'm doing is avoiding that phrase environmental impact, which just turns so many people off because it just sounds so awful. Because what we would leave behind if we all just went poof would be um, the sum total of our environmental impact. Except, of course, some things would keep going. I mean, they're just yeah, like our, if our, if our, right. If our nuclear power plants melt down because they can't be safely, you know, whatever. That, that's yeah, and, and and so you know, having visited Chernobyl, uh, I included that in that book. But I also went to what was then the newest. In, in, state-of-the-art and biggest in, uh, nu nuclear plant in the United States, Palo Verde outside of Phoenix, Arizona. And I just asked people, I said, okay, so what happens if you guys are here, you know, the, the personnel? And of course I said, well, you know, immediately emergency generators kick in because the water has to keep circulating around the fuel rods. Um, so I said, so what are they running? They said, diesel. I said, how much you got? They said, a seven-day supply. So obviously within seven days, you know, we would start to get into a meltdown there. It was very interesting because, you know, just looking at a nuke plant when I was out there, first of all, when you drive out there, you see these big, they look like mushroom clouds coming up. And it's because 
45,000 gallons a second of water is evaporating off there. You know, that's, that's the cooling water. Uh, they do recycle Phoenix water out there, but still, you know, Phoenix 5,000 gallons a second. Wow. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's pretty amazing. Um, you know, I haven't written that for a while. It's either a minute or a second. I may have to revise that one, but I'm not going to go pick up the book at the moment. Yeah, right. Um, but, um, and, and then the parking lot is, you know, it's filled with cars. It takes 2,000 people to keep that thing going all the time. They've got their own fire department there. And, uh, you know, so you extract the human beings and a lot of stuff that we have left is going to self-destruct. Our chemical plants are going to melt down. You know, I went to the Houston, um, Galveston, oh, gosh, yeah. which is, you know, it's, it's, it's the biggest petroleum complex in the world. And they're constantly replacing the steel because the, you know, it corrodes in those tanks, a 20 year lifetime maximum. And the pipes the same way you've got, you've got hot crude pushing through those things. And um, anyhow, a lot of our infrastructure is going to leave some, you know, it's going to pump some messes for some time after our untimely demise into the ecosystem. But ultimately what happens is that everything eventually calms down. Um, I don't know, there's 440 nuke plants, so nobody really knows how calm that one will be. Yeah. But, you know, the point, being, you know, for me is that I realized about three quarters of the way through that book that the earth has gone through five enormous extinctions before. Now, someone from Harvard is saying maybe six, but whatever, you know, and we know that say the Permian extinction was the biggest one. 252 million years ago, you know, over 90% of all life forms were gone on this planet. And, you know, the land looked like an empty lot, but there were a few weeds growing there and they eventually, you know, died and decayed and they left some organic matter and over millions of years, soil rebuilt up and something crawled out of the sea is a, uh, after one of these extinctions, it was only one vertebrate left. It was a toothed worm, our, mm. our ancestor. And you know, eventually what happens is it takes tens of millions of years, but the earth always bounces back rather beautifully. Right. And so I got into that book because I was worried about the planet. You're absolutely right. There's no reason to be worried about the planet. Planet's going to be fine. But what about the planet that allowed our species will evolve and flourish. That's different because each time it's a real different planet and that transition time is a make or break for a lot of species. A lot of them don't get through the bottleneck. The ones that do get through takes time to evolve a very biodiverse system again. And we seem to be entering one of those times. Yeah, yeah. Well, I fully agree. That's part of what motivated me to have these conversations is because it seems to me every season there's another few million people that were in denial last season and are sort of breaking through that a little bit and in one or more of the stages of grief and then coming to 
either futility or we're seeing addictions ramp up and all kinds of things. But on the way to collapse or in the process of collapse, it seems that addictions always ramp up when you look at previous civilizations. And, well, you know, yeah, helping yeah. people see beyond the bad news, which is real, and then to see some silver lining or what, I'm curious, what, ha, what helped you emotionally as you came to understand this sort of an ecological worldview? What, well, what, uh, um, I guess for those of you, we never mentioned the name of the book I'm referring to uh, that I wrote. It's called The World Without Us. And, and, and that little trick of mine, by the way, worked very well. It's now like in 35 languages and, and you know, the, the book, you know, you mentioned people who, who had seen things based on the book. Yeah, it spawned a whole cottage industry of, of documentaries that were ripped off from the book. None of that was, uh, <laughs> you know, nobody bothered to ask me for the rights to it. They all just changed the name and, you know, knew that I, I probably wasn't going to take my time suing them for intellectual property rights, which, you know, whatever. I've, but, you know, my own path, as I was writing that, um, something really clarified for me towards the end of doing that book, because I was just doing some mop-up interviews, trying to think, okay, so what have I forgotten? And it, it finally occurred to me, is there anybody who wants the human race to disappear? Uh, so I looked around and I found there was something on the internet called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. So I called this guy up, uh, the director of it, and um, He's a very serious person. He's a, he's a teacher in Oregon, but he just sort of felt that, you know, we got to the point where we're pushing so many other species off the planet, the person we're going to push something off that we, we'd realized too late, oops, we should have held on to that one. So, uh, cause, you know, because that was then going to mean our own demise. So he thought that the only really ethical thing that we could do would be to, um, just stop having children right there. And then within about a century, our species would go extinct, but that way we wouldn't be dragging any other species with us. And, you know, and he said, think of it, you know, each generation, the world would get more natural and more beautiful. The very last people would see the Garden of Eden restored and then fine, it would be over for us and time for something else. And, and I, what was interesting about that was that he was absolutely right. And that was kind of the premise of my book, The World Without Us, that without us, things get more natural and beautiful. But it made me realize that I was writing that book because I want a world with us. I mean, I'm, you know, every species eventually goes extinct, just like everybody dies. But there are so many beautiful things that our species does. We're not the, you know, birds aren't the only species that, uh, or group of species that sing. Um, you know, we've, one of the fun parts about writing that book was, was coming up with, or, or learning, you know, what man-made objects are gonna last the longest. And it turns out that uh, many of them are art objects, bronze sculpture, uh, the artwork that we put on the Voyager spacecraft that are now leaving the solar system. I mean, that's a really beautiful thing to think that, you know, long after we're gone, Rodin, effigy of us will still be contemplating. And uh, so what I ended up doing for that book was um, I realized 
you know, this guy's got a point, but I don't want us to go extinct. On the other hand, you know, we are really having an impact. So is there some happy medium between what he was suggesting, mm-hmm. no more babies, and what we're doing? I needed to find out what we were doing. I didn't really know. Uh, so I contacted the UN Population Fund. It's kind of the catch-all demographic institute for the world and learn that every year we had about 84 million people, which is a number that kind of hard to get your mind around. Yeah, of course. But then I divided by 365 and this number popped out, which wasn't hard at all for me or my readers to grasp. And that's like every four days or so we add a million people to the planet, which did not seem like a sustainable number. <laughs> And so I left hanging at the end of the book, you know, well, should we do something about that? I mean, you know, there's the Chinese one-shot policy, which nobody liked, including the Chinese. Uh, but still, you know, I was, that book got so much attention. And I was even on a lot of religious programs and right-wing radio programs, talk shows and stuff. And, and I remember one of those talk show hosts saying, you know, I, I tell people to read your book because it's this great book. It doesn't, you know, you're not preaching to us. You're not making us feel guilty. You're just giving us all these facts and letting us decide for ourselves. He said, but if I'd seen that thing that you put at the end, you know, about population, he says, I probably would have never read it. Mm. He says, but then, you know, the way you got there was so logical, you know, like how can we keep growing on a planet that, that doesn't grow? Anyhow, um, that question became so prevalent that it ended up being my next book, Countdown, and in which I went to 21 different countries to basically find out the answer of four questions. One, how many people does fit, do fit on this planet without tipping it over? Two, how much nature do we need to save in order to save ourselves? Three, if nobody likes the Chinese policy, is there anything that's culturally acceptable to a wide range of the world's religions and tribes, et cetera, that would allow us to manage our population? And four, if population has to shrink if we're already too many, how do we design an economy to let us prosper that doesn't involve uh, perpetual growth? Because, you know, economies, define their health by whether they're growing. And to grow, you have to have population growth. One, you need more consumers all the time. But two, and this is something economists never tell us, uh, it's their little dirty secret, is that the more people there are, the cheaper labor is. Because you get this big pool of poor people fighting each other over miserable wages. So anyhow, um, we could spend the rest of this interview just talking about that book. But the gist of it is that, yeah, we're yeah, waiting. Give the, yeah, give the, give the short answers to those four questions or like the, where, you, where you take the reader in that. Well, there was one prior question, I think, which, which will answer a lot of, uh, which might even be more valuable for people. And that is like, how did we get to be so numerous? Um, 
and, and it happened two ways, and both of them seemed like just terrific ideas. I mean, until the beginning of the 19th century, our population, you know, you look at the curve and the graph was pretty flat. We barely grew mm -hmm. because like every other species on this planet, uh, we had very high mortality rates, particularly infant mortality rates. You know, nearly half of all kids didn't survive long enough to have children themselves. And that happens throughout nature. I mean, we're all designed to make extra copies of ourselves because some of them aren't gonna make it. Mm -hmm. And then our, you know, our life expectancy averaged about 40 years. But then beginning in 1798 with a smallpox vaccine, we started coming up with these incredible medical breakthroughs, you know, just the use of antiseptics, pasteurization of milk, all this. And then suddenly our curve started to slowly rise. And as we brought infant mortality way down, people were living longer. We passed a billion and by 1900, there were a little over one and a half billion of us. And then if you look at the curve, suddenly it shoots up like that in the 20th century. And that's because we discovered how to grow much more food than nature could have ever possibly done by itself. And we did that two ways. One, the first thing that happened was the discovery of how to pull nitrogen out of the atmosphere and chemically slather it on the ground. Used to be that that essential nutrient for plant life uh, occurred because of only a relatively few number of plants like legumes and acacias that host uh, nitrogen fixing bacteria in their roots. Um, and then our population started to zoom up so much that by the 1960s there were over 3 billion people and even nitrogen fertilizer couldn't keep up and a lot of Asia was going to go into famine. Uh, but then the Green Revolution happened, which is simply through some clever crossbreeding, we learned how to make cereal grains, meaning rice, bean, and corn, produce shorter stems so they put more energy into producing more grain. Mm -hmm. And that was terrific for staving off some imminent famines in places like India and Pakistan, but there were a couple problems with that. First of all, these plants were developed in laboratories. They needed a lot of protection. So pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, and a lot of this nitrogen fertilizer to make them grow faster. So chemical problems. Also, they dug a lot of wells in both of those two countries alone to pull water out of the river valleys to water them in a hurry. But the third problem, which was not anticipated by most of the world, except by the founder of the Green Revolution, Norman Borlaug, who when he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize, in his acceptance speech, he warned everybody, he said, unless we combine exactly. the, uh, the um, modern methods of producing more food with population control, we're gonna have a terrible problem because he understood that the more people who don't die of famine, they're gonna to live to give birth to more people. So now India is just about ready to pass China as the most populous country on earth and its water table is dropping drastically. And Pakistan is this crazy country that's got 200 plus million people in a 
land the size of Texas, which only has 26 million people, and Texas oftentimes feels crowded. And by the middle of the century, Pakistan keeps growing the way it's growing. It's going to have the same number of people as the entire United States. It'll still be the size of Texas, and we wonder why it's a power keg. So the bottom line here is that when people ask me if I think that overpopulation is the biggest environmental problem, my response is, well, if there weren't so many of us, would we even have any environmental problems? And that's where we're at. You know, we've cheated the Grim Reaper in terms of infant mortality, and uh, we now take up nearly half the terrain that's not frozen on this planet simply for growing food for one species, our own, which is the main reason we're pushing all those other species off. And we have, on top of all that, created this incredible jet-propelled society that allows you and I to talk to each other through these flat screens right now. Uh, and it's really great, except it's all required a lot of concentrated energy. And that concentrated energy was something that nature didn't need for its cycle, so it buried it away, but we've dug it all up in a couple hundred years. It worked great, except we didn't realize that all this waste of it, you know, every process has got some waste in it, and it's been piling up in the atmosphere, and now it's coming down on us. Yeah. So here we are. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, how do you answer your own question? You know, is this countdown our own, our last best hope for the future on earth question mark how do you how do you answer that well nature does not allow imbalances to last forever um i showed in that book that there are a lot of really interesting very socially acceptable ways of bringing down population even faster than what china did i mean there's a muslim country in my book that's done it faster and it's a total voluntary program there's a Buddhist country. There are two Catholic countries. In fact, there's several of them. I just use those as examples. But when we manage population, and it's, 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 it's a simple thing to do, you just have every family average two children or fewer because it takes two people to, to produce two children, so they replace themselves, population doesn't grow. Someone who wants to have fewer children, one child only or none, population shrinks. Uh, the easiest way to make that happen is you educate females. Every country I went to, rich country, poor country, Muslim, Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, you name it, you get a girl through high school, she's got something interesting to do with her, her life, uh, she can help her family economically, but she can't do it with seven kids. So she's going to have on the average two children or fewer. And, you know, the best example I can think of is Italy. It's got one of the highest education rates for women in the world. It's this Catholic country that surrounds this other Catholic country, the Vatican, populated by a thousand gray haired men who are trying to tell them what to do. But these are educated women they decide for themselves. So that's the way that we solve this stuff. Trouble is, it takes time. Yeah. It takes two generations. China started the one-child policy in 1980. It's not gonna peak till about 2035. Yeah. 
and that's when its population will start to drop. So nature is already starting to fight back. Um, the situation that we have with the climate right now is starting to kill people mm -hmm. in parts of the world. Certainly every summer it's killing people in all parts of the world. Uh, we're starting to have toxicity problems um, because of the way that we grow all the food to feed all those people. The oceans start to not like that. Uh, you know, a combination of the energy we burn and the runoff from our fields either toxifies or acidifies the ocean. That's going to cut down on our food supply. It's going to it's going to eliminate a lot of plankton who produce a lot of oxygen. Now, plankton have lived in higher acidic times in the past. Uh, there have been times like in the Jurassic period, there's five times the amount of carbon dioxide. It was just different plankton. But until those plankton new ones evolve, you know, we're going to see some big die-off. We're going to, we're just going to, we're already seeing die-offs all over the planet. Uh, we're watching the western forests of North America burn down from Alaska down through Mexico and into Central America. We're seeing, you know, these drought flood cycles that both of them are are, are creating um, real havoc and starvation in some places, or if not starvation, then migration. Yeah. Refugee po uh, populations are moving northward in one hemisphere, southward in the other hemisphere, and there is going to be, there already is resistance. So we're starting to lose our democracies in civilized places like Western Europe because uh, people are getting scared of a combination of climate change and all these others showing up. Um, wars are gonna break out, they're already breaking out. Syria, that's a climate-driven war, drought. You know, five years of drought pushed a lot of people off the farms, into the cities, and you get these kids who literally are rootless. I mean, they grew up in a farming environment. Suddenly they're in a city. It's asphalt. What do they do? Well, they can become, easily can become radicalized. They can become fodder for terrorist groups, and all hell breaks out. So we're looking at all hell breaking out right now, and this is nature's way of starting to um, uh, <laughs> bring us down to size, I guess. What I'm hoping is going to happen is going to be a combination of, you know, we're going to get wise before nature starts slapping us around in ways that are irrevocable. How do we accept what's inevitable, engage in where we can make a difference, and have some sense of, of peace or uh, joy in life uh, in the midst of contracting times when there's so much suffering and, and the, the news makes us aware of uh, suffering that in a small village, you only knew about what was happening, you know, word of mouth. And now we become aware of things all over the planet. And so I'm curious, how have you found, as you've been studying this stuff and writing about it, how, what have been the tools or what have been the supports for you just emotionally, personally? Because oh, there's a few things. Um, I'm, I guess I'm married to one of my coping strategies. My wife is an artist and you know, she's both a sculptor and a theatrical artist. So every time I walk into her studio or we go to see um, another wonderful performance, we went to theater two days ago, I am reminded of 
how beautiful my species is and how much pleasure we can get simply through encounters with beauty. Yeah. I mean, you know, this world is still and will be to the end of our lifetime as a species and for many, many more beyond. It's going to be a beautiful place. I mean, I'm looking out my window right now at a, you know, a, a northern temperate woodland in New England, and it's just gorgeous. You know, the leaves are starting to, to turn. Now, it's, the forest is changing in some ways that I can perceive. I mean, we're starting to see some species that aren't going to be as successful. Some of these trees are being weakened as more rain is falling than they're used to, or we're having a colder winter. I mean, it's working itself out, but nature is constantly working itself out. You can't freeze nature into place. Nature is a constant succession. It's a constant evolution. Uh, you know, you mentioned radiation before because of the nuclear plants, but there's background radiation in the crust of the earth, and that's one of the drivers of evolution. There's, there's a constant change going on. We have been speeding it up. I mean, one of the interesting things in those woods <coughs> outside my window is that I can't walk into them as easy as I used to because, I mean, I live at an elevation where um, there never used to be um, deer ticks. But over the past five years, there are because ticks are now enjoying broader ranges. They're moving farther north into, I mean, they're up in Labrador, they're in the Arctic now, and they're moving farther up. So they came up to the elevation that I live at now. And, um, and there's a whole bunch of them and they feed on human blood and they give us some diseases that can be really debilitating. Yes. Um, Lyme disease isn't often fatal. It can be, it rarely is, but it can weaken you. So you're susceptible to other things. It can be done. This is just one of, you know, one of the ways that nature's coming back at us. Right. And, you know, other epidemics are happening elsewhere. In, in fact, frankly, other species of ticks are happening elsewhere. Every country I go to, they're now talking about, about ticks. There's going to be some successful species, and that's, that's one of them. Um, you know, bird life, I watch to see what's happening every year. So far, all the species that I enjoy seeing come back each year, came back this year. Um, there's maybe one or two that I didn't, I didn't notice, and we'll see if that's an anomaly or I just missed them. Mm -hmm. But the numbers are thinner. On the other hand, um, you know, I think birds are going to stand a fairly good chance of making it through this next bottleneck because, after all, birds are a species of dinosaur. Or exactly. they're, they're, they're dinosaurs. We now know that. They're the only dinosaurs that survived the uh, crater, you know, in Chichlub uh, in the Yucatan. By the way, I was just down there. Um, I'm researching my next book, and, and I was there, and I, and I stood at the spot of the crater. It's, oh, wow. uh, yeah, it, 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 that, was, that was an interesting That's moment. That's an awesome experience, I'm sure. Yeah, to think about it, because I was down there with a whole lot of people who are, you know, trying to keep the shorelines um, yeah as resilient as possible and uh um 
you know, given what just happened in the Bahamas, this is going to be an interesting challenge. Yeah, but, sure. Well, but, what, that's what, other, but that's the other thing I'm doing to, to, to really enjoy myself. You know, I'm still looking at nature. I'm still looking at art and I'm still hanging out with and writing about people who are doing their damnedest to try to do something. And that's yeah. a wonderful thing. Say a little bit more about, if you want to, about the book you're working on now. What are you researching? Well, by contract, I'm not supposed to say too much oh, about it. Okay. But, but, but basically, you know, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, what are, you know, what are our realistic hopes for the future? Not our pie in the sky hopes, but, you know, but, but what can we, you know, what can we probably count on for the next few decades? And, um, and what measures are we going to be taking? to try to you know keep that bottleneck as wide as possible or you know to get through it ourselves um you, i'm looking at a wide 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 variety of things and i'm going to uh several different countries to do the research and that's about all i'm allowed to say about that's it. that's fine yeah my wife is actually involved she's one of the main point people in north america in an activity that uh will extend far beyond our species whenever we go extinct, whether it's soon or far. Uh, and that's the field of assisted migration, assisting trees, native trees, and migrating north. I mean, of course, you know, during the glaciers, their trees were migrating north and south like crazy. Um, they're used to that. But now things are changing so rapidly that literally thousands of species of trees will go extinct uh, unless humans assist them in migrating faster than any other animal can move their seeds because the passenger pigeon's gone now. And so squirrels or any other animals that move their seeds, it, you know, it's not going to take 30 years for that tree to bear fruit and then it just can't happen. So, so that's one of the activities of, you know, whatever tree you love, whatever shrub you love, whatever plant you love, um, uh, gather some seeds from further south than you, wherever that is, uh, that are more heat tolerant, plant them further north than you, and this is all legal, you can do this. Um, and it's a way of, of assisting in the entire green world moving faster. And that's, it's, I consider it holy work. I mean, to me, topsoil and building and planting trees to help them migrate faster than any other animal can is something we can do even if we go extinct in the next hundred years. Is she getting any blowback from anybody about introducing non-native species in a... In a, it's not a no, yeah, it's not a matter of non-native. It's not going from continent to continent. Um, uh, she shows, I mean, she shows uh, uh, compellingly, she's a scientist, she's a science writer, how these plants have been doing this for millions of years and then advocates their, in fact, she just submitted something, I think today or maybe yesterday uh, in terms of the Endangered Species Act around this. So I'll send you a link to her stuff. But. No, I, I mean, that's, that's, that's worthy work. I mean, planting trees is one of the best things that we can do for uh, you know, to absorb excess carbon in, in the atmosphere and, and to biologically store it here on the planet. It's, um, uh, you know, I was just with one of my books, um, Gaviotas, The Village to Reinvent the World. Uh, I, I had dinner in Bogota about a month ago with the founder of Gaviotas and, wow. and his goal is to get everybody on earth to plant five trees a year. Yeah. Uh, that in, and um, and the other thing that they're doing, I mean, Gaviotas for any listeners or viewers who aren't aware is, 
it's probably the most sustainable place I've ever been in my life. It's this little village out in the middle of nowhere in Colombia that basically had gone, it was an experiment to see if people could live out in the middle of nowhere and they had to do, there was no infrastructure. So they developed all these really clever uh, kinds of alternative energy, like solar panels that worked under cloudy, rainy skies and, and, and pumps that could go much deeper than a conventional hand pump and that could wind turbines that could just tap tropical breezes. Anyhow, the place has been going for over 50 years. And, and their latest thing is that they are coming up with what they believe is going to be one of the most successful smokeless kitchen stoves for a uh, wood-fired kitchen stove that only requires branches and culls, doesn't require chopping down any any tree trunk in order to fire it. So I, you know, I, I wish them great luck in, in those endeavors. Those are worthy things to be doing. And, you know, it, it helps us pass the time. And who knows, it, somebody may break through. Plus, you know, I keep reading these, the, these articles about, you know, we're now going to go past two degrees centigrade of, uh, of warming. And there's a point where we won't be able to survive. And I believe there's a point that we won't be able to survive, but we haven't gotten there yet. We don't know what else is going to happen. Uh, I'm not looking necessarily for technological miracles, right. but Right. I am looking for, and I'm already seeing a groundswell of consciousness coming about, about. I mean, even climate deniers are aware that something's going on, and once they are, they become vulnerable to getting a, hopping on a new bandwagon. Should that bandwagon start to smoke out there, and who knows? You know, you get this little Swedish teenager who suddenly mobilizes a big chunk of the world. You know, I'm. I don't know about hope, uh, but I can certainly see inspiration. Yes. There's plenty of inspiration to go around. Yeah, my sense of hope is it's kind of a neutral word like liquid. You know, do you have liquid? Do you have hope? Well, some liquids can kill you. Some liquids can sustain you, depending upon what we have hope in or hope for. If we hope in things that simply allow us to be an ecological overshoot more severely, damage the environment more profoundly, then that's not a good hope, it seems to me. But if we have hope with the kind of example that you've written about, uh, Gaviotos, and, and, uh, and, and hope in terms of living more simply, um, downshifting, downscaling. John Michael Greer wrote a book years ago called, uh, that was actually a summary of some of his best blog posts, Collapse Now and Avoid the Rush. You know, that sense that we can all get used to less energy, less stuff, less stimulation. I like that one because it's L-E-S-S, -S, less energy, less stuff, less stimulation. But these are things that we can do individually, but we're also planting seeds, both, both um, uh, exactly in terms of planting, assisting trees and migrating and building topsoil and planting trees that way, but also planting seeds of possibility that, that we just don't know whether they will bear fruit in the future or not. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, none of us has a crystal ball. I mean, my editor w wants me to have one and explain exactly what's going to happen in the future. But, you know, best I can say is, is I can look at people making their best efforts to forge a future um, for my species. 
And, you know, if we do that in the process, inevitably, we're going to be leaving this planet in better shape for other species who are going to succeed us. Uh, you know, in every tree we plant is going to make this place a little bit better. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.